Welcome to the Compliance Time, AML and Financial Crime Podcast. Here, you can learn from compliance experts, enthusiasts and creators who are contributing to the fast-moving and dynamic field of financial compliance. Hello everyone and welcome to Compliance Time. In today's episode, we'll talk about insider trading, how it happens, how do people rationalize it, and how compliance can help. Our guest sharing his experience with us is Tom Harden. Tom previously spent much of his career as a financial analyst in the US. In 2008, as part of a cooperation agreement with the US Department of Justice, Tom assisted the US government in understanding how insider trading occurred in the financial services industry. Known as Tipper X, Tom became one of the most prolific informants in securities fraud history, helping to build over 20 of the 80-plus individual criminal cases in Operation Perfect Hedge, a Wall Street house cleaning campaign that morphed into the largest insider trading investigation of a generation. As the youngest professional implicated in the sting, Tom was tasked with wearing a covered body wire on over 40 occasions to help the FBI bring down some of its biggest targets in the industry. Later, Tom was invited by the FBI New York's office to speak to their rookie agents in 2016 and is now a global keynote speaker, corporate trainer and board advisor on behavioral ethics, compliance and organizational conduct and culture risk. Through rigorous self-examination, Tom took responsibility for his actions as a young professional, used the experience to transform his life and is now on an ongoing journey into human behavior and why we sometimes make the wrong decisions. So now let's hear from Tom. Hello, Tom, and welcome to Compliance Time. I am very happy to host this discussion and I'm hoping that it will be super interesting and exciting for the people to learn more from you. Thank you, Denise. It's great to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. Thank you. So let's start by telling us more about yourself and to share your experience. Sure. So my name is um, Tom Harden. Um, about 10 or 11 years ago, I was also known as Tipper X. Um, there was a large investigation into the crime of insider trading in the U.S., uh, primarily in the hedge fund uh, asset management space. Um, over 80 individuals were criminally charged with securities fraud. Um, hedge fund managers, uh, one billionaire, all the way down to lower level people. Um, 32 of those 80 people who the FBI prosecuted in the U.S. were cooperators. So I actually was a cooperator. Um, I helped the FBI build these cases. I didn't volunteer to cooperate. Of course, I was, I was charged with insider trading. Uh, the short story is I was a young analyst in my 20s working at a small hedge fund in New York City uh, I received four tips, insider tips on mergers and acquisitions deals uh, in the stock market in 2007. Um, as, a, as a junior analyst at my firm or as the younger analyst, um, I could buy a stock in our portfolio and not have to talk to my boss as long as it was less than 1% of the assets that we managed. That was my small threshold to Usually, you know, I would do research on the company and then buy a small amount of stock if I was interested and wanted to do more research. So all four of these tips came from another investor who knew about these deals. Um, I knew at the time in my industry, this behavior was rampantly going on. Um, to me, it was something 
like we were in a regulatory regime where it just wasn't being prosecuted in the 2000s, early to mid 2000s. Um, I knew these other people were doing it. I didn't feel like I had to ever do that and break the law to get ahead in my career. I was already in a great position when I was 28 years old at a prestigious uh, hedge fund firm. But when this woman called me, this investor called me with these tips, um, I kind of rationalized it. Just I felt like, well, everybody else was doing it. It's clearly not being prosecuted by the SEC at the time. Um, I bought a less than 1% position in our portfolio in these stocks uh, over the course of 2007. Uh, my boss said nothing, so we, can, we could talk about that later, certainly. And my firm made about a million dollars on these trades. We managed about $100 million in client money, so it helped give us only 1% of performance, very small. And I never considered the idea that I would later be caught because I was trading so small. And I never considered the amount of money I was making on this crime because um, ultimately I only made $46,000 personally, which in the context of an entire career is really small, um, obviously. So after 2007 and 2008 that summer, the FBI actually approached me on the street and I thought, oh my God, you know, what do these guys want? I mean, I kind of knew what they wanted by approaching me on the street, but I almost had forgotten about those four trades since we make thousands of trades a year. The FBI said they knew about those four trades. They were going to crack down on Wall Street going after some of those big wigs I had mentioned before. And could I help the FBI build some of these cases as a, as a younger person in the industry? So I ran around Wall Street um, for two years wearing a body wire, recording conversations uh, with people of interest to the FBI, trying to get them into conversations about times that they had traded stocks with inside information. And this went on for two years. My undercover name with the FBI was Tipper X. So that's um, why that's, that's out there today. I didn't name myself Tipper X. I actually didn't even know I was Tipper X until Tipper X came out in the Wall Street Journal as this key piece in these investigations. Um, my name came out, Tom Harden as Tipper X in 2010. And that's where I realized, even though I was helping the FBI, uh, that my career, my reputation was destroyed. I mean, it's only one strike and you're out with these situations. Um, I had left my firm around that time. Um, and so 2010 to 2016 was really no man's land for me. Couldn't work anywhere. Couldn't get a job. Threw away my career over very stupid decisions when I was in my 20s. Uh, I could talk a little bit more how I rationalize that or how, how people rationalize it uh, later. Um, and then 2016, the FBI gave me a phone call and I thought, oh, my God, what do these guys want now? Um, I, didn't, I didn't go to prison because I helped the FBI. I was sentenced in 2015. So that's at least um, a good part of the story. But th the FBI called me again in 2016. And I thought, oh, my God, what do these guys want now? And they said that they were building some new cases on Wall Street in 2016. And these cases sometimes take years, years to build. And could I come talk or kind of train their young FBI agents? in New York City about my case and what it was like working with the FBI because um, once they had me and they exposed me for what I did, I became an asset for them helping build some other cases. So I spoke at the FBI and then the FBI encouraged me to go share this story with other uh, trading firms, hedge funds, investment banks, uh, where there might be insider trading risk in the industry. So the last four or five years, um, I've been going around sharing my story as part of compliance and ethics training for uh, primarily financial services firms. And so I never, ever thought about 
ever, you know, doing a podcast like this and talking about my experience or, or talking about it with anybody. Uh, but it has turned into something that I hope, you know, is, is, is helpful for society versus my actions, you know, early in my career. Yeah, I think this is very good that you're allowed to share and that um, people can learn from your experience because I think this is important. I mean, all of us make mistakes, but it's important to learn from them too. And um, what do you currently do? Um, what are some of the projects that you work on? Sure. So I started a company called TipperX Advisors. So I figured I might as well trademark the name TipperX. TipperX.com is my website. And what I try to help companies do is kind of bring real world storytelling to the compliance training experience. Uh, Too many times I understand that compliance training can be um, not memorable, sort of here's the latest rules and regs. And not to speak ill about attorneys, but sometimes when the attorneys are the compliance officers, uh, they can sort of talk to the business as if they're attorneys trying to sp- explain the latest law or the explain this, the latest rule or regulation. And it can kind of gloss over people's, people's eyes <laughs> when you're <laughs> explaining this. So I go in and share my story, uh, how I rationalized what I did, where I was in my career, uh, the pressure that I was under um, to make you know, money for the firm and my boss looking the other way when I actually crossed that line and committed securities fraud. And so the last couple of years, that's what I've been doing. Um, there's also been a, bit, a major push for um, an increased focus on conduct and culture, especially in the UK with the FCA in Australia, in Hong Kong, with some of these senior manager regimes that are out there. So I've been calibrating my story to kind of fit with the objectives that people would like to get out of their conduct or conduct risk training, because it can be sometimes hard to see, well, if we train people, what are we going to, what are they going to learn from this? And so I think from my story, people can learn a lot about how these small decisions in the beginning that seem like, oh, these are just small infractions can, can really lead to something uh, that can, that can ruin your career as unfortunately I learned. Yeah. Um Let's, let's talk about insider trading a bit more. How would you say it occurs most often? And as you mentioned, let's discuss some of the rationalizations that people use um, to justify it. Sure. I think today um, it honestly uh, occurs most often. You could either be an, um, an institutional or professional investor or a retail investor uh, to be honest, I think in what I've seen in the cases uh, in the in the U.S. and the U.K. in Hong Kong is it's often the retail investors, so not as much the professional investors like I was, but you know you could receive a piece of information from a friend who's a senior officer director at a publicly traded company, um, and trade on that information as just a retail investor, and that's an easy one uh, for the SEC to usually piece together. Um, I do think that not all insider trading cases are being caught. Um, There is a few academic papers that I'd be happy to share with people, um, you know, who listen to this that would like to learn more about it. I can email you these papers. Um, There was one paper a few years ago that looked at all of the mergers and acquisitions deals in the marketplace. So when a company is being acquired, obviously, that stock price is going to go up a lot. Sometimes when that deal is announced, 25% of these deals have unexplained spikes in the share prices happening in the market before that news becomes public. 
So only about 5% of those cases are prosecuted. So I don't think the regulators have scope to really get all the bad actors in these, in, in these cases. Um, and it often, I think, happens today more around when information can be leaked about a, an event in the market. So that's usually two events. Um, in most countries, I think uh, issue, public issuers release earnings quarterly, although in some countries it's only twice a year where you learn about the financials of the company and they have to disclose that to the public. And then there's also these deals where company A is going to buy company B. And I think that's where leakage more and more happens um, today in the marketplace. Um, I can even see it. I mean, I still follow the market, even though I'm not allowed to, to trade anymore, um, where a company buys another company on a Monday morning. And then you can look at the stock price of the company who was bought on Friday and see a lot of options activity, the stock going up. So it's, it continues to happen. Um, I think some of the rationalizations are, you know, it's a crime where you think about, okay, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm just buying shares of this company before everybody else. And so that's an easy way to think about or to rationalize it. Um, when I did it, I still thought of myself as a good person, even though I was placing these four small trades. So I was able to create some distance between most of my life. I was doing the right thing. I was happily married, um, not, not breaking laws anywhere else in my life, but I was able to say, okay, in these four times, um, I would justify making these trades. And um, everybody has this, this fudge factor. I think this is what uh, one fantastic speaker, Dan Ariely, talks about. He's a social scientist. Uh, definitely people should look up his YouTube speeches. But he talks about fudge factor, where we all want to think of ourselves as good people. We want to cheat up to the point we can do that. Um, rarely does it ever escalate to something like I did, but we all have that line in the sand where we're willing to cheat a little bit uh, and still think positively about ourselves. Um, two more situations. I was renaming my behavior. So I kept saying, I'm just taking a flyer in a stock price. I didn't say I was insider trading. I just said, oh, I'm just taking a flyer. So I'm using a euphemism there to create um, some distance, again, between me and my illicit act. And I told myself I would just do it once. So it happened four times on the first tip and trade. I said, I'll just do it once and I'll never do it again. Uh, but when my boss said nothing, and to my knowledge, this behavior was still rampant in my industry, it became easy to do it three more times. So it's never, it's never just this once. So those are some of the rationalizations and how I see it you know, happening today. Um, do you think this year there was a lot of talk about this Reddit group that's investing um, into the stock market in some different way? Yeah. Do, you think, do you think this is legal? I, I know that this is a little bit um, <laughs> off-topic question, but I just remembered now when we were talking about insider trading that it, it was largely in the news and I'm guessing a lot of people are curious too. Yeah, it'll be interesting how this plays out. I, I, was, I was following that story because it was everywhere. Um, and I even I went onto the Reddit boards to kind of try to figure out what I know about securities fraud and insider trading. I don't I think it might be hard to bring a case there. My understanding is that nobody with so GameStop people are probably familiar with. I don't think anybody was misrepresenting, um, you know, saying GameStop's going to be acquired or GameStop's going to be, um, you know, have this big deal coming or that type of thing. I think from what I understand 
everybody was in this stock because they knew a hedge fund was, was shorting the stock. And so they were all playing a game. Um, the guy whose uh, name on YouTube was Roaring Kitty and mm-hmm. um, deep effing value on, on Reddit. Uh, the, the, he's been sued for securities fraud by another investor who lost money in GameStop. But I think it might be a hard case to prove because they weren't making any mes- misrepresentations or there wasn't really a pump and dump like, I'm going to buy GameStop and then tomorrow I'm going to go out and create all these lies about GameStop so I can sell my shares to you. I think everybody was in this just playing, hopefully, with just not about, you know, with just gambling money. Um, my, my concern would be if somebody took their life savings and put it in GameStop when it was at $400 a share. But from what I understand, I don't know everything. I know the SEC is, of course, looking at this. I think it might be hard to prove insider trading and market manipulation um, because it seems like everybody on Reddit kind of knew they were just playing a game and were risking, you know, losing all their money. But we'll just we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, but but recently there are a lot of um, such investments and things going on, and I think people should really focus on getting some better education and understanding yes. bef- before making these investments. Because as you said, what if somebody puts their life savings when GameStop was at yes. 400 or when Bitcoin was, I don't know, um, what, what's the price 000. now? It was, yeah. was 58,000, it's down to 46. I'm actually, so I'm allowed to invest in Bitcoin. So that's the one thing. <laughs> oh, because they're that's, not regulated in any way, It's not right? regulated, not yet, so. <laughs> I, 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 I fret the day when I get that call or the email that I have to sell my Bitcoin. So oh. <laughs> right now it's okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't really have any options personally. So <laughs> yeah. I, I'm so curious about a guy who bought a pizza with his Bitcoins, um, you yes. know, in the early days. <laughs> How does he feel now? <laughs> we, need to, yeah. we need to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, but to your, to your point on education, um, I think it's so important for these young people on Reddit to really be educated on how to invest and not be speculating on, I know it's fun and we're all stuck at home. And so maybe people are very bored. I think that's all of it too on Reddit, but I just wish those younger people that are just starting out, um, you know, investing really were taught how to invest properly. And I think that's really important. And we need, we need to do that back in high school. I mean, so many classes I had in high school, I don't use it all today, you know, even geometry, like get rid of geometry and teach people financial literacy and education, I think so. Absolutely. Yeah, there, there are many plus. Um, I, I am from a different country and we also have many redundant classes and people after high school don't know very basic things about banking, about um, credits and stuff like that, like financial education, not only investing, right? Right. But, but that's, I suppose, another topic for a different yeah. episode. <laughs> yeah. um, while we are speaking about Reddit and such channels, could you please mention some of the means and channels that traders and people in the investment space use to obscure the regulators um, in terms of insider trading, right? Yeah. So I guess, how do they get around it? How do we... So my case was pretty easy for the, the regulator. Um, another investor called me on my office phone and then on my cell phone and uh, I placed the trade. So today this would be... You know, and it is caught over and over again. Um, you know, Tom, why were you so foolish? Like, I never considered the idea of ever being caught. Like, I knew what I was doing was wrong, but I never considered that I would be looked at because my trades were so small. And that really doesn't matter. I, I learned. So if somebody's going to do this today, I think there's a couple ways. Um, just to give an example, I think it might be easy. So 
if I have, um, say, a million dollars that I want to invest and um, I have a choice just for sake of example, buying um, Microsoft or Apple stock and I get information from an insider, a friend at Microsoft that's going to cause Microsoft to rise and I buy Microsoft stock and then it rises the next day. Um, I'll be caught usually by the SEC. However, if I get this information from my friend at Microsoft who says, Tom, tomorrow Microsoft um, is going to announce uh, this new phone that's going to kill the iPhone and everybody's going to buy this Microsoft phone and um, not you no longer buy the iPhone. So Apple's going to go down. And if I own Apple shares and I go to sell those shares on the information I learned from my friend at Microsoft, that's also illegal insider trading, but that's usually um, never going to be caught um, by the SEC or in, any regulator. Usually uh, I say that, but we'll see. But that's an easier way when you're not trading in the exact issuer of the company where you're getting information but you're making trades in other companies and it's a very much a gray area. So I own Apple. My friend at Microsoft says this Microsoft phone's coming out tomorrow. I sell Apple. Apple goes down. That's a harder case to prove because I didn't, I avoided losses, which is, this was an illegal situation, but that's a harder thing. So that's one way uh, people could do it. You could also learn about company A is going to buy company B company A their stock price is going to move a little bit on this deal. Uh, you'd never want to buy company B now because, as I said, you're going to get caught like I was. But you could put on a trade like a, like a call spread, um, not to be too technical with people, but uh, where you could bet company A stock is going to move a lot, maybe down on this announcement or up or have some volatility. And you could put on a sophisticated options trade in the stock of the acquirer and make money that way because you know this deal is coming and you're probably not going to get caught because they're going to go after everybody who was buying the stock of the company uh, who's going to get acquired. So that's some ways if somebody wanted to commit this crime today that I think they'd probably be able to get away with it. So oh, basically the SEC is following all the communications as well, like phone calls, uh, text messages, I suppose, right? They are, yes. Um all compliance officers, uh, you know, U.S., Europe, um, really have to be on top of. But we can talk about this, you know, uh, the communications channels of the employees, um, the younger, you know, Generation Z, millennials today are really on on so many different social medias and communication channels. And um, WeChat is a big thing in Asia, where uh, investors talk to corporate management teams on WeChat, and you really have to get a handle on, on the kind of communications channels people are using and have a policy, you know, for everything today. So. I can imagine that the communications channels themselves don't have any such policy to. Um, right, no, no, yeah. We know everything about Facebook that we know right now with WhatsApp and it's not a, not a company that's uh, doing the right thing, right? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe it's something for the future there were some compliance professionals hired in a non-financial sector um, company so maybe um, monitoring conversations would be something for the future but we can we can keep the future for later sure. um, so let let's talk about some of the lessons that you would like to instill in compliance professionals 
Yes. I mean, today, uh, most of my talks um, are really beyond insider trading. It's just, uh, so I think about, let's just come back to my case. Uh, everybody always asks, Tom, where was your compliance officer? I mean, you were placing these trades. Did you never get, never get questioned? Uh, I was at a small firm that was seated by a larger firm as our chief investor who sat upstairs. So there was a compliance officer somewhere upstairs who I didn't know. Uh, they were nameless, faceless. I had no relationship. Even when we were setting up our business and going through that compliance, not anything about insider trading, um, the answer was always no when we asked a question and, and we weren't supposed to ask any more questions about the business because the compliance officer said they have the last say and it was always no. So I think there was never going to be a relationship. Um, the, the training was only rules and regs once a year and that's it. So I think today uh, it's so important for the compliance officer to have a relationship with the business um, even beyond work. I mean, hopefully people listening in have very good uh, strategic relationships and partnerships with key stakeholders in the business. Um, so when situations arise where maybe it's not exactly um, sure what the business person should be doing or, um, you know, something comes along where they're just thinking, okay, let me talk to the compliance officer just to run through this because I'm not sure what to do that that conversation happens. Um, I just think like if, if Denise, if you were my compliance officer back then, and maybe I was telling you before I did this, like Denise, you won't believe everybody in the industry I know is like insider trading and, you know, I'm not going to do it, but like, I just know what's happening. Then you could have said something like, that's right, Tom, like in our company, you would never do that. Um, I'd like to think if we had that conversation, when this person called me with this information, I would have reflected back to that conversation I had with you because maybe we, we had dinner or grabbed coffee just to talk about the business before. And I told you this and you told me we would never, we have a zero tolerance policy here, Tom, for doing that. I'd like to think I would have hung up the phone and continue on with my day because we had that conversation. And I had that relationship with you. Uh, so I think that's important today. Uh, for, for compliance to have that relationship to um, check in from time to time to see what the business is unpacking in terms of we're all working from home. I used to say compliance should be walk the floor compliance, but now we're not really walking the floor <laughs> any, anymore. So I've had to take that on my presentation and adapt that a little bit. So just frequent check-ins. I mean, we're all on Zoom or some type of MS Teams um, check-ins with the business. What are they, what are they battling out there on the front lines? How can compliance be more of a business advisor than, than the police? Um, I think it's so important when we talk about the future of a compliance to think about themselves as advisors. And I think also compliance officers should really have some type of training in behavioral science and how that can work with their compliance programs. I mean, I'm not the expert on that, but there's some fantastic resources about how you can work this into people's training that I've seen. And I've uh, some of my clients where I speak have had really good results about stopping people and just making them think more in complicated transactions or when they're making decisions about what they should be thinking about. Um, so I would encourage all people in compliance listening in to get really educated on how they could bring behavioral science um, to compliance. Yeah. So as a soft skill, like a behavioral sense, or maybe some kind of 
emotional intelligence that's involved, would you say that um, compliance profession can benefit of more such soft skills training? Because we know that they know the regs or they're supposed to know the regs, the regulations, what, what changed in SEC, what changed with the FinCEN or all the right. kinds of regulators. But what, what's really missing oftentimes is the connection, representation, um, really to get to know that person, to be more open in discussion. Yes, the soft skills are, are important. And, the, and the, I've gotten to know a lot of compliance officers the last few years. And they're all, I mean, they're all, the ones I engage with are fantastic. And I think, I don't know, I, wouldn't, I don't want to speak for most of them or, or even yourself, but I think a lot of people don't grow up saying, hey, I want to be a compliance officer. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's interesting how people get into the field. And as I kind of joked, okay, there's obviously, you know, there's attorneys and not to speak bad about attorneys, but that's kind of a natural thing where compliance so many times comes out of the legal department. But, um, you know, today I meet with so many people from different backgrounds in the field of compliance, and they're all trying to do the right thing. They're all trying to, you know, develop more and more of those soft skills. Again, those key partnerships that they can have with the stakeholders in the company um, when, you know, the company is moving along, how they can just be helpful and how they can be more of a partner to the business than the police officer. I think we want to get rid of those days where compliance is the police. Um, I think there's still a problem on the business side with respect for compliance. So you'll sometimes hear somebody in the business say, oh, here comes compliance or you're in trouble compliance. And it's this negative connotation that um, I hate the word compliance. I think we got to change that, <laughs> that name in the industry. And, uh, you know, just, it, I don't know what you would change it to, but business advisor or, or something more um, aspirational rather than like, we just got to comply with the rules and regs. So, um, but uh, I, I think it's important again, yeah, soft skills and, and really having some representation on the board. Um, I don't see it as much where the compliance officer can directly report to the board or present to the board. I'm seeing that a little bit more, but where you have more stature at the company is where compliance can at least jump in and have those conversations with the board. And we can talk about that a little bit later too when we talk about the future. I think this is a good connection to discuss the, the future of the compliance role. And what, what's your view into that? Yeah, I think it's really coming of age. Um, I started uh, with my presentation in 2016. It was still rules, regs, police even then. And I think now in 2021, it's starting to come of age. I think it's been pushed by the regulators to really understand uh, companies need to understand their culture and have a have a process for measuring the culture, which is also something the business will push back on. Like, how do we measure culture? It's so hard to measure. And if we can't measure it, um, you know, we can't track it. We shouldn't spend time on it. But I think you can, the compliance officer has the opportunity to work with HR and organizations and really get a sense of what the culture is at the company and where there needs to be improvement. I think too often, compliance is in one silo and HR is in, in the other silo. And you're not really talking about uh, employee behavior or other things going on at the company around culture. So I think with the push from the regulators today, there's an opportunity for compliance and HR to really work together to get a picture of uh, you know different subcultures inside companies. Cause it's not like one company has the same culture across every office around the world or every uh, sub you know, department inside the company, different parts of the company have different cultures. Um, some may have more of a blame culture where, 
you know, people are, are always blamed for mistakes and you really want to try to avoid that. Um, you want to have a culture where people can learn from mistakes. And I think that's where compliance again can be take, take the lead there. I, I really think compliance has a really big open opportunity to go in any direction that they want beyond the rules and regs to, to, to become, you know, that trusted advisor to the business to, to be on the forefront of any uh, cultural reforms that companies need to have um, that they've identified in their seat as a compliance officer or working with HR. So I really, I really see this, this theme about culture uh, becoming bigger and bigger the next couple of years. It's been a focus on, you know, a lot of regulators around the world. You know, we see regulators all the time making speeches about this. And I think sometimes it comes to a company like who should be in charge of this. And I think that's where compliance can kind of step up and be not just the gatekeeper with the regulator, but, uh, you know, take the initiative to, to, to put forward, um, you know, some of the key sort of measuring tools for the culture at the company uh, going forward. And how can culture help compliance? No, it's a good question. Uh, people often talk about sort of culture of compliance. And I, I, I struggle with that too, because you can have a compliant culture. And while you have a compliant culture, you can have an unethical culture. <laughs> so, so it's sometimes like this is compliance and ethics and one, um, you know, one person is compliance and ethics, which is fine. But, uh, you know, there could be a situation where if you don't have a rule or there's no law and you don't have an ethical culture, uh, the employee can make the wrong unethical decision because, oh, there's no rule or, or law against uh, me not doing this or me doing this because uh, there's no ethical culture. So I think it's important to bring this culture into compliance and we have to move away from, uh, can I do this? So that example of, oh, I guess I can do this because uh, it's not against the, technically not against the rule or the law. Going from, can I do this to should I do this? And that's where I think compliance can jump in and get this uh, ethical culture that we all want inside our companies thriving. You know, that mindset shift in the business from can I to should I? And so I think we still have a long way to go with that. Yeah, but that's very interesting. Uh, to be honest, I do hear also about um, culture often, but I, I've never thought how uh, compliance function can uh, lead really into that change. So this is this is a very good, I think, example of uh, ethics and culture that would be in close relation with compliance of uh, different rules and regulations. Um, yes. uh, and to conclude, um, where can people find you? So my website is uh, tipperx.com, T-I-P-P-E-R-X.com. And email is tom at tipperx.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn. So feel free to connect on LinkedIn. And um, as again, what I do is uh, a, usually a presentation of my story as far as compliance training. But I'm always having conversations every day with people who just want to email and, and chat about any of these topics. Um, you know, I, this is something I really have a passion for today. And um, so that's, yeah, that's how you can find me. That's awesome. Thank you very much for your time today and for our discussion. Um, I'll include all the links to the show notes of the podcast episode and the papers that you would share if there um, is a link version, I'll add them. If not, I'll add them differently through the blog. But uh, if you can please share with me, I'll include sure. everything. Will do. Thank you, Denitza. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Compliance Time. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave us a review which will help others to find the podcast. Also, you can subscribe for email updates on our website cmpltime.com. And don't forget to check out our new blog. Thank you. Till next week.